From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 170 of the Killing It podcast this is carl boy that was a nice long tail they were like well you know sometimes we sometimes we truly are killing it and we're feeling it at extra length this week well especially when we have such a good kickoff question this week gents do you consider cereal a soup I do not because I don't drink cold soup, and I don't gazpacho, and I don't eat gazpacho. hot cereal <laughs> <laughs> and porridge. Uh, See, I'm gonna go. I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go hard no because I consider still, and I know that I'm wrong in the absolutism of my definition. But soups include vegetables, right? Like uh, some of them have meat, some do not. Some have like other components but they almost always have a vegetable component and i do not like the idea of vegetable cereal but i will say that uh if we ever want to have a deep and 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 interesting conversation about the virtues and varieties of breakfast cereal i have many ideas to contribute because i could very happily eat breakfast cereal for three meals a day and, and i would be fine you don't eat sugar frosted broccoli bits I do not, and that just that, that sends a shudder down my spine. <laughs> so I mine is I I do not consider it a soup because cereal is cereal. It is its own freestanding category. The same way soup is a category, cereal is a is a thing. It is unique to itself, and thus it, it, the distinction means I don't have to link it into other groups because cereal is cereal. It doesn't doesn't need anything more. And it, it doesn't matter own, if you're going with the, the, has, the, the good stuff or the, the frosty marshmallow bits. They're all cereal. So there's, right. so there's well, no so breakfast that... soup for you? No soup. Soup is its own thing. But by the way, I don't, I don't distinguish soup on cold or hot or, or vegetable. Like, there's a whole category of soups. There's, there's all kinds of different kinds of soups in there. There are all kinds of cereals in cereal. Some of them are good for you and some of them are distinctly not good for you. But cereal is its own thing. <laughs> so according according to the Killing It team, uh, uh, cereal deserves its own leg on the new food pyramid. It's a category. Isn't it already? Isn't the corn manufacturers already carve out so much corn stuff <laughs> that cereal is its own category already? Yeah, I think grains grains are the are the deal. Fair enough. Well, MSPs are frequently at the forefront of cybersecurity challenges. Between changing customer expectations and the growing threat landscape, you're stretched thin. Need a helping hand? Download new research sponsored by Field Effect and learn how offering MDR increases revenue, simplifies operations, and maximizes margins for MSPs. The analysis explores the growing managed detection and response market and how MSPs can differentiate their managed security service with the right MDR solution. You'll also find insights from five MSPs who've added Covalence, a hybrid MDR solution, to their offerings and the positive impact it's had on business. Want to learn more? Check out the link in the show notes to download that research. Very good. So our first topic is a little bit difficult 
for some people to understand, but it's very difficult if you try to dig into it. <laughs> Basically, there's a new phase of physics that has come into existence only very recently, and it's called 4D time crystals. Uh, we talked about 4D printing on the show a few times, where basically the fourth dimension is time, right? So you 3D print something, and then the nature of what you've printed changes over time, right? Uh, this is kind of sort of a little bit like that, but think about 4D crystals as something where there is a state of being, like imagine a box full of coins that are all heads up, and you shake it, and if you shake it an even number of times and you open the box, they're still heads up. But if you shake it an odd number of times, they are all heads down. And as odd as that sounds, this is really cool for physics. 4D crystals were created by using the Google quantum computing environment. Uh, and basically, they ran a test. They said, let's see if this theory holds up. It does. And now it's reproducible. And now it's going to get smaller. And now it's going to be a thing that is going to affect a lot of things in technology. Uh, we've, we've put in two references to uh, YouTube videos on this. Uh, one sort of describes it, uh, and then one describes it in a friendlier uh, way. But it, to me, this has two important pieces. First of all, you and I can just buy time on a Google quantum computer, and if we're smart enough to ask the right questions, we can do some amazing stuff. Uh, and the second thing is that um, this will eventually be something where we will see new products, new services, new things happening because of the ability to have a reproducible steady state 4D crystals. Thoughts? That hurts my head. Like, so, so I, I mean, thinking this is one of those areas where I am really glad that we have really smart people on some of this stuff because trying to wrap my head around four dimensional objects and things has always been a struggle. It's funny, I was just watching Russian Doll on uh, Netflix, which also reintroduces the idea of four dimensional with the fourth dimension being time as part of the plot. So at least I'm following along from that perspective. Um, I'm very glad there are smart people working on this. Uh, I'm still questioning of, do they really have a quantum computer? Is this just a simulation of a quantum computer? Does it really achieve the goals of quantum computing? And do we get what we've been promised with it? I think this is all still areas to be determined. Um, but I'm glad we've got really smart people on this. And I'm also glad we have enough time for technologists like us to watch the, the kinds of videos we're linking because <laughs> clearly we're gonna have to up our game in order to understand how to apply these things when the concepts are this hard to wrap your head around. Well, see, and, and that's the thing. I, as an industry, we take for granted the, the phenomenal compute capabilities that are at our fingertips, right? 25 years ago, it was a Jetson-style daydream to think about the kinds of things that your iPhone can do for you on a regular, very affordable basis. When you think of, I remember the very first time I took a computer coding class uh, many, many years ago, and, and they sat down and explained to us the basic building blocks of code, ones and zeros. And my simple brain was like, so you can't write very much code with only two letters in your alphabet, right? Like I, my, my brain did not comprehend it. And once I finally recognized the coding that is built into a very simple 
on or off type mechanism, it, that that is where all of modern society has advanced. This is going to perform the same function, but in a different phase of physics. And, and that re-educates me on the fact that before any computer ever became a computer, it was a white paper written by a physicist, not by a computer engineer who had to be able to step in and say, it takes actual physical matter to do these things. And then you can do it at mega scale at, you know, 1.9 teraflops per second. And, and that's when compute capability gets very, very real. When I first came across this concept, my initial reaction was, so you can flip it from on to off. Cool. And that didn't really give me any idea of what you can do. But when I merged the concepts of teraflops in the ones and zeros into this kind of a phase change material, now it's getting intelligent. And that does introduce a whole new layer of, of compute. I mean, we've been doing computing as an industry for a while. And I cannot fathom that we've arrived at the end state and that we all just sit around and go, you remember back in the day when we used to invent stuff? Wasn't that cool? No, we always have to continue inventing things and not just smaller form factors for the same technology. I just want my phone to be smaller, but, but the, and <laughs> but it, the it ultimate, it, and it will be. But what I also want to want to point out is, is that we live as technologists, we live and services focused technologists. We live in a slightly different space than many of our colleagues. Our job is to watch the trends and implement them when they are mature enough to be practical. That does require you watching a lot of things that are far off, but it also needs to be recognizing the fact that a lot of this stuff is not ready for the vast majority of practical implementations. And so we should get very excited and we should watch these things and then also say, we are a long way off from this mattering in the operations of the vast majority of the people that I work with. Well, and also, you know, as with every kind of technology, it gets invented five, 10, 15, 20 years before it becomes practical. So there's that. On the other hand, this literally this concept was an idea in the brain of one physicist 10 years ago so this isn't like something that took 50 years before somebody could figure out the technology or a way to to test the theory the theory came into existence and 10 years later it became a fact right so which you know don't tell don't tell any scientists i use the word fact because they'll all get all upset and so forth but exactly but but this one now goes into the long line of things we hope to eventually take advantage of. Right. And, and, you know, when you think about us being in the exponential century, like if it takes 10 years for something to go from concept to changing the nature of the way physics has to be taught from now on, <laughs> that's huge. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you sort of abstract it a bit and think about, okay, think of an environment in which you can predictably see something going between zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, forever, right? Now you can build something on top of that. And I don't know exactly what that is, but I know that, the, as Dave said, there are people smarter than me who are immediately going, oh, I know exactly what I'd build on top of that, right? And so you just, just knowing that down the road, there's this thing that's going to make our lives better. And then what else can you combine that with that is also just barely over the horizon? Uh, it's it's impressive, and I, I just uh, that's why I pointed it out. Also, 
I want everybody here to subscribe to the Physics Girls YouTube channel because it's amazing and uh, she's crazy, crazy smart. Well, let me move <laughs> us into topic number two then uh, and bring us in a technology that is closer to full implementations for those of us in the <laughs> services world. And you actually, the closer you get, the more actually in implementation, the more these practical concerns become a thing. I'm going to point to Microsoft rolling out their responsible AI framework. Um, and this may have gotten mo more attention based on the fact that it started in the New York Times with a headline of Microsoft plans to eliminate face analysis tools in a push for responsible AI. Uh, they are they have created a set of guidelines that they have published around both policy and management and guidelines and communication for the way that they are putting forth responsible use of AI. And it, you know, first of all, they are pulling back on some of the areas because they're saying, you know, in the areas we can't deliver that because they've broken it down to principles like fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, transparency and accountability, they're going to pull it back. And facial recognition is one where they recognize they can't deliver to that. Gents, what, were your, what was your reaction when you saw this one? I, I want to make sure that folks see amongst the, the downloads or the, the links we have here is a PDF download that um, it's not too dense. It's a 27-page PDF, but... I love the fact that they are putting out these actual public guidelines and then saying, and we're going to comply. And um, it's interesting because they have enough money to comply even if it costs them some money. It's sort of like, we'll take the, the high road um, knowing that maybe their competition won't be able to take the high road, uh, even though some of, those, some of the products that are going to stay on the market that Microsoft wouldn't put there, somebody else is going to put there. Um, you know, it's like everything else, it's a big complicated world. But I put this in the category filed next to Tim Berners-Lee's uh, contract with the web, right? That we are beginning to have some sense of what we as a society think are the ethical guidelines for the use of technology. And in, in many ways, this whole conversation is about 100 years too late, but I'm glad we're having it. See, again, a amen that it's about time we're having the conversation. And a couple of years ago on this program, we discussed that concept of if you do not know what the ethical implications will be, maybe don't just move fast and break things as, as we have had as a business model in our industry. Maybe take a beat and ask yourself the should question. Should we be doing these things? The fact that the mainstays in the industry are actually doing that with this new technology as it becomes more than just science fiction and becomes legitimately commercial technology, I think that that's a really good sign. It does, however still have that great big blinking red light for me of voluntary uh, subscription and compliance. Uh, I agree with you, Carl. I think that there is always a commercial element to these ethical decisions. They will pat themselves on the back while they say, by the way, I'm the only one who can afford to do this. And all y'all don't that don't have unlimited funds, you're going to put out a product and I'm instantly going to say, tisk tisk. You're not doing it responsibly the way that I am. And, and I find that that's going to be a, a little bit of a, you know, like Hatfields and McCoys. I think people will pick sides, but eventually we could get to a framework. All I can point to is in the last 
two weeks, I think we've seen three or four major headlines where, uh, you know, whether it's about whether AI is sentient or not, and whether or not they are subscribing to privacy um, dictates in the EU. But the major companies are actually paying attention to the ethical question. And that is a very important piece of progress because we obviously don't have the oomph in government to regulate this stuff yet. We need some self-regulation as flawed as it might be. Well, so let me put let me put on the self-serving hat for a moment and analyze Microsoft's move for what they think they might be able to get out of it. Agreeing with everything both of you just said and particularly wanting to put on the ethics side, but I want to actually take it from that angle to say, like, look, this is also can be used as an example of laddering where you are positioning yourself as some core element of who you are. And by doing so, you have intentionally positioned yourself on something that your competition cannot do or cannot position themselves on. A great example of this right now is, is Apple with privacy. Yes, they are focused on that, but what they are also doing by saying we are super highlighted on privacy is positioning against Google on I, uh, iOS versus Android, where Android is not private iOS is. And here's an area where Microsoft can position and say, we are very ethical with our AI. And the implication and positioning is our competitors are not based on their business model. The two are not in, in conflict and you can do, you can be self-serving and you can serve the greater good at the same time, as you see like something along those lines by holding up a particular set of standards and holding yourself to it. But there's an interesting kind of marketing positioning lesson to be taken from this about choosing what might not be an obvious position and how you can highlight that against your competition. And I would point out if, if you go through their guidelines, one of the things that's really interesting, because you know you say uh, Microsoft can say we are ethical, but really what they're saying is we've created a framework to be ethical. But the huge piece of this is as you read through it, there's all these things that say and we need checkpoints and we need constant surveillance and we need to monitor this, right? It's almost like they've written a job description for the next uh, monitoring tool of the future, which is AI consistency with a certain set of guidelines and so forth. One of the things that comes out of this for me is that there is an overhead to using AI that we have not seen in technology before. Right? If I use a computer to do something, there's very little overhead. I got to I got to uh, get rid of it when it's time for recycling. I have to pay for electricity in the meantime. I have to do some occasional upgrades. I you know, there's some labor involved, right? There's very minimal layer of maintenance and um, and making sure that I'm monitoring how that system is used while it's in use for whatever, five years. Um, but with AI, you're saying, ah, this is going to need forever a layer of maintenance, a layer of monitoring that may not be us, right? But somebody somewhere <laughs> has to do that. You have to have the constant checkpoint because if you set out some AI thing and say, okay, you are free, go, go. Uh, you don't know where it's going to go, right? And if it decides by itself, we've seen these stories that they've shut down AI programs that uh, created a new language between two programs and now we don't understand what they're saying to each other, so we shut them down, right? Uh, it, it becomes in that realm of science fiction where you're like, okay, it may not be sentient, 
that doesn't mean it's not scary. <laughs> fly, little AI, fly. <laughs> and, and, and therein lies the issue, right? Your computer is a tool, and no tool is inherently good or bad or, or otherwise. The question is, what do you do with it? When the tool can do things with itself, that's a new layer of responsibility and and absolutely zero i think it's healthy to admit absolutely zero of our current rules and regulations apply effectively to solving this problem like not to not not to be the one who's like you know standing on the side of the road with a cardboard sign saying the end is near um but what i will say is there's there's no present in communication in privacy in whatever there are no laws that govern the use of ai and and that's not cool considering how close to prime time this is you know it's almost weird that like you could imagine a really smart member of congress looking at this and saying oh i see that we are going to need some rules i wonder what those would be luckily we don't yet have any smart legislators well that's <laughs> over on the business of tech you should catch that for my coverage of legislation <laughs> excellent see how we we segue internally and externally over here smooth audio professionals over here i know so topic number three uh it, we're, we're going to talk about information and whether or not one group of of people having access to all of the information is a very very good idea so particularly we're pointing you to an article in the verge that's talking about a new enterprise agreement a subscription if you will between google and the wikimedia foundation the folks that bring you wikipedia or at least administer the application of that knowledge for the first time ever they have signed a big fat contract with the folks at google so that google can more easily and more technologically uh, use the information that exists in wikipedia they're not just scraping it they can actually do an api to pull that stuff out and that has sort of the dual impact of a increasing the exposure of wikipedia as a source of information and b reducing the cost and effort of providing you with the latest and greatest information as the result of a Google search. Technologically, I think this sounds nice. It sounds like a good idea. However, when we get inside of the question of uh, one group of people having access to the ins and the outs of all of the information, now we start to ask questions. Uh, what are your reactions, gentlemen? Can I hate this and love this at exactly the same time? Oh, I'm so conflicted. Like, so I'm a big supporter of Wikipedia. I love the, it is a foundation. It is a, uh, you know, it is structured as a volunteer organization with, uh, you know, with donations. And I want to see them continue to exist and believe that they are providing a real service and it is a value. And so from, from one hand, I look and say, like, yes, them delivering that information in a way that is monetized for them, besides asking all the users to constantly give money, seems like a very smart thing to do, to offer that information. So from the Wikipedia side, yay, love it. But then I go over to the Google side and I go, I understand what they're trying to do. They are trying to keep you more within Google. They are taking more of the search results pains and they are keeping you within their own domain. For me, this is a, it is a logical set, step. It is a legal step. Uh, it, it makes perfect business sense for them 
and it points to the fact that we really do have a monopoly in search, that I do not have another option truly to go out and say, I'd like to approach this competitively differently as a consumer. Good luck with that because <laughs> there just isn't another option. The, on the good side, you know, one of the art, article uh, mentions is that, uh, you know, if you go to YouTube and there's some potential misinformation there, there's an automated widget that goes out and, and looks and says, okay, here is some alternative information that may be useful. And that is produced by YouTube, a Google company, um, drawing on Wikipedia. Um, so that's all good, but you know, at some point, what if Wikipedia isn't right and that information isn't the best. And now when you take the monopoly of that information, because this will strengthen Wikipedia, right? I mean, this will make it an even more authoritative source. Um, and, and the problem with that is what if it's wrong? Uh, you know, you have to buy into the assumption that the crowd knowledge is always better and is always more correct. Um, and I'm not saying it's it's wrong in little places here or there or whatever, but just sort of theoretically, I don't like feeling like there's only one source for this information combined with the only one source there is for search. And by the way, I just full disclosure contribute to Wikipedia every month. I have a ongoing subscription, you know, ding, ding, ding. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of it. Um, but you know, who is Apple gonna, uh, partner with, right? So they've got Apple, thankfully they've got Bing for their search. Oh my God. So there you go. But Bing <laughs> plus Apple plus what's the alternative, uh, um, encyclopedia that they can combine with, or do they combine with Wikipedia as well? Well, see, that's the business model, right? This is an enterprise agreement signed between Google and Wikimedia and not an exclusive one. So one would hope that we could see other sources, actually other platforms sourcing back to that, uh, that central piece of information. But that's exactly where my brain starts to, to really crackle. I think it's great that Wikipedia is getting more resource to do the job that they're doing. Because I think as a non not-for-profit uh, foundation, the fact that they have been able to perform this function in our compute-centric society, that's a pretty remarkable get. I, if you had to sit down today and say, guys, I want to propose a, a, a feel-good resource for the world. It will benefit all mankind. And it's just a whole bunch of people volunteering their time to source and check and then publish the truth of information. If you launched that idea today, people would laugh you out of the room, not only on the, the business model side of things like what you're going to get that many people to A, donate and B, volunteer, but also on the one arbiter of what is truth. And, and Carl, that's where it comes back to what you were saying. There's a crowdsourcing of knowledge that is designed into the mechanics of, of Wikipedia, which is cool, except that we all know that individuals can be smart and crowds can be super dumb. And there is a frenzy phenomena that happens. And it's, it's happened over the years inside Wikipedia as well. I, I think if, if Apple, if Microsoft, if Amazon, if anybody else that has a viable platform wants to also sign an agreement, that at least gives us other viable 
doorways into the conversation. So it's not just uh, total tunnel vision, but that's where I come back. And, and I mean, this Dave, to bring it full circle back to what you said, I begin this with going, I buy the good idea of Wikipedia and I question the commercial motives of Google, except now I'm back to, well, as long as we have multiple Googles dialing in, then we're fine. Now I question the sole source model of Wikipedia, and that's not where I thought that this this thing was going to go. <laughs> I, I've I've been a big supporter of Wikipedia for as long as they have been around, and I'm afraid that we don't have control of the input over there. Maybe I'm, I don't know. There there's an element of. Uh you know, if we talk about crowdsourcing being the old frame for it and a DAO being the new control mechanism on it, I actually would, would say that crowdsourcing looks to me a little bit better than a DAO because you can, that can be sort of bought and you can like, Oh, and, and so there's an interesting element of, I actually think there's some, some beauty to the old school crowdsourcing model here that, does actually work. I'm not convinced it is a true sole source when you are properly leveraging a community's resource. And so I think I'd poke at that and say, eh, I'm not so sure, Ryan, that we're talking about a, a, a single source when it is a powerful community that has structures around amplifying the correct expert voices. Anybody who knows who's tried to do changes on Wikipedia knows there is some st enough structure there that it does not chaos does not reign supreme. So I'm not sure it's a single source. And it was probably five years ago when they first started doing the panel thing where you would you would ask a question and they would put a panel on the right and try to answer that based on what what uh, was inside Wikipedia. There was a concerted effort by people when you put in what happened to the dinosaurs uh, up came an article about how the earth is 10,000 years old and right this entire thing that was created because a whole concerted effort a group of people around the world did this search and then they all agreed that they were going to click on one specific link until it worked its way to the top of the algorithm and it became the preferred answer that Google put to the right of the search and they pulled it from Wikipedia. And that was a manipulation of, of both systems literally five or, or more years ago and it only came to an end when so many people made fun of it that Wikipedia changed the search result and Google changed the search result to manually stop their own algorithm. So it happened once. It, it will not likely happen again, but it can. Well, except that that's the thing. If you look into our world of media bubbles, news bubbles, etc., I do think it will happen again. And if it could happen once, that's where I'm saying we need to be careful. Not that it's broken. Just that now that they've got all this enterprise cash rolling maybe, in. Maybe it's fourth dimensional time. Exactly. <laughs> We're bringing it all the way around. It'll, it'll evolve over time. And with that happy note, we come to the end of episode 170 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.